Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Hey, well, welcome. It's, uh, it's good to see you. We do have uh, a team down in Mexico this weekend. We're excited about that. Yeah. We've got about uh, almost 100 people, 90-some people that are down there, and they're, they're kind of planning this church, and, and they're doing the building. I've heard the building was going uh, faster. They're going faster than they've expected. Uh, uh, sharing the message of Christ. It's just an exciting thing. Um, uh, I mentioned in my email to you this week that I was going to be, I'd give you an update, and it's really good news. We, uh, you know, we were taking the special um, uh, offering for the poor down there to start this, this ministry down there, and uh, I told you we need $7,000 to cover the expenses for this weekend. We were hoping to get as much, uh, eventually as much as 17000 which would do the whole church building, uh, may, believe it or not, and, and so uh, the good news is we, we are almost at the $14,000 uh, mark, and so that seven came in, so we're excited about that. So uh, thank you for your, your growing generosity there. And then uh, also just a special announcement. For those of you who are brand new Christ followers or kind of new at this or maybe you've just never got the basics down, uh, we have about four times a year we offer a course that's called Christianity 101 designed for people who are new or just exploring uh, the claims of Christ. And it's a five-week course. It, uh, it's going to start on July the 10th. It's a Sunday. It's a second service. This, this service here, the 11 o'clock service. And so uh, it kind of just kind of covers what we believe as Christ followers, uh, how we grow as Christ followers, just some of the basics, and, and so that's, uh, you can go online and sign up for that, all right? Other than that, uh, we're ready to jump into our time of teaching. Uh, my name's Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at the church at Rocky Peak, and we are really glad you're here, especially if you're brand new. Welcome. Inside of your program is a message note sheet we use every week for our time of teaching that helps us just to follow along, and so I encourage you to take that out. So uh, assuming you're ready to go, uh, I'm ready to go. You feel ready? Y'all ready to go? All right, let's, uh, let's pray. God, thank you for what you're doing here uh, in our church. We, again, thank you for our brothers and sisters down in Mexico and what they're doing. We just pray that uh, you would be with us today as we, as we come and take this next step. And what does it look like to unleash a movement of passion in Christ followers? God, as we study, what does it mean to be a part of your, your movement? Uh, and what does it mean to be part of this new community we call the church? We pray that you would unpack your word for us in a powerful way. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today about 800 years uh, before the time of Christ. It's about 800 B.C. Uh, the, the, the place is Israel. There's a very wicked king and queen on the throne. In fact, they're kind of the worst tandem probably in Israel's history. They led the nation into uh, immorality. They led the nation into uh, terrible social injustice. And most importantly, they've led the nation away from God into idolatry. And so it's, it's a desperate time. And so God raises up a man to speak to this situation. And so it's been three and a half years now since it's, there's been rain in the land. And I want you to picture that. The land of Israel, if you've never been there, is very much like Southern California. First time I was there, it's like, hey, this is Escondido. You know? uh, and uh, so, uh, so anyway, it's very much like that, very much a rainfall like that. So imagine that you know, we, we've gone three and a half years without any rain, and you have no Colorado uh, water being uh, shipped in. Uh, and that was the, the nation. I mean, they, uh, animals are dying, crops are dying, nothing's growing, people are starting to die. It, it's a tremendous problem. It's a tremendous crisis. And, and the worst thing about it is he knows it's his fault because, because he's the guy who prayed three and a half years ago and asked that God would stop the rain, and God answered that prayer. And so, so now we're three and a half years into this process, and today is the day of the big showdown because this is the day that God has told him it's time to go to the king and to challenge the nation to a spiritual showdown. And so as he goes, he gets up that day, he's putting his sandals on, his toga on, whatever he puts on. Uh, he is heading out, and, and he knows that by the end of the day, uh, chances are he will either be arrested and in prison, he will be killed, or for the first time in three and a half years, there will be rain in the land. Well, today uh, we're continuing this series that we've been in now for the last four months. For those of you who are brand new, again, welcome. We're glad you're with us. You can see it on the wall. It's called Just Do It. It's a series uh, in the book of James. And this is actually the last week of this series. Uh, we, we're going into a brand new series next week called Choose Wisely, which is a study on the Old Testament book of Proverbs I'm very excited about. Uh, but today is, is the very last day in the book of James. And, and so for those of you who are new, I want to kind of quickly bring you up to speed. Uh, James is one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. He's the, uh, he's the actual, uh, he's a younger brother of Jesus, half-brother, grew up in the same house, 
but he didn't buy into Jesus during their, their early life in Jesus' ministry. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that he came to realize who Jesus was, gave him his life, and he then became the, one of the key leaders of the early church. And so in this letter, which is probably the very first document in our New Testament, he's writing to fellow Jewish Christ followers. When the movement of Jesus is very young, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so today we come to the very last chapter, chapter 5, and the topic is really what does it mean to be part of the movement of Jesus. And so we understand this, that when a man or woman gives their life to Jesus, that instantly they enter into a new, what I like to call a vertical relationship with God, right? That we have a new relationship with God, God is our Father. But, but what we often don't realize is the moment we give our life to Christ, we not only enter into a new vertical relationship with God as our Father, but we enter into a new horizontal relationship with all, brothers, all, all other believers as our brothers and sisters. And so what does it look like to be part of this movement of Jesus that we call the church? And so that's the topic on the table as he uh, kind of wraps up this teaching. And so if you want to take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5, there's a section there on your note sheet called James, the final challenge, and we're going to pick it up at verse 13 and just see what he has to say about what, what does it look like to be the movement of Jesus and, of course, our application here at Rocky Peak as, as God leads us into our future. So here we go. In 5.13, he says, is any one of you in trouble? Now, can any of you relate to this? <laughs> you ever been there? Uh, from the time, from the opening, very opening of this letter, one of the things we've seen is these believers are going through hard times. Do you remember how it starts in chapter one? He says, my brothers, consider it pure joy when you go through uh, trials of many kinds. This is how the letter starts. Remember last week how the letter ends, uh, the very last passage? He's writing to Christ's followers who are being persecuted uh, by rich landowners ripped off. That was the topic last week. And so from beginning to end, we've seen these are people, many who are going through very difficult times as Christ's followers. So he says, is any of you in trouble? He says, well, when we're in trouble, what are we supposed to do? What's he say? Let him what? Let him pray. He says, so, so as Christ's followers with this new relationship with God, our first instinct, whenever we're in a jam, should be to pray. We, we should turn to God and say, God, we, we need your help. But of course, we're not always in a jam. Sometimes we're going through good times. And so he says, well, is anyone happy? Uh, let him sing songs of praise. And so as Christ's followers, uh, we're in a hard times, we pray. In good times, we praise. And that's what we do here at our weekend, right? And so he says, next, is any one of you sick? And so one of the kinds of hard times we go through life is sickness. Now, in this passage, he's not really talking about just minor sickness, like you got the flu or you got a cold or something like that. He really seems to be talking about a major illness that would cause you to be bedridden. Because what he says next, he says, if you're sick, he should call the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So apparently you're, you're so sick, you're not really able to come to church. You need to call the elders to come and pray over you at your home. Now, this whole concept of anointing with oil is an interesting one. You know, in the Old Testament, when God would call certain people to service, like, uh, like kings and priests, for example, that they would often be anointed with oil, which is kind of a symbol of the Holy Spirit uh, on their life. We know in the New Testament uh, that when uh, uh, doctors in, the, in ancient times, they would use oil as for medicinal purposes, so oil becomes kind of a symbol of healing. We also know that when Jesus sent his men out to do ministry, to, to share the message of his movement and, and the kingdom, and to, he would send them out and say, heal the sick and cast out demons. And at least on one occasion, in Mark chapter 6, it says they did that, and as they went out to heal, that they would anoint people with, with oil as they heal. And so, so apparently in the early church, the, the, the anointing with oil was sometimes associated with healing, and that's what he's saying here. And then he goes on. And he says, so, so anoint him in the name of the Lord. And then in verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds to me like if this were the only passage I had on healing in the New Testament, it's a passage that sounds like you just follow these steps and this is what's gonna happen, right? Uh, you're sick, you call the elders, uh, they anoint you with oil, you pray in faith, and you will be healed, right? That's what it sounds like. And, and of course, we've probably all experienced it's not always like that. I know I've been anointed with our elders twice 
for my throat issues, and I still haven't been healed, which is why we're looking for some new elders if you want to. Uh, no, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, and so we, we've all probably seen this. You've probably seen this in your life. I've seen God heal people supernaturally. I've seen him not heal people. James makes it sound as if it's just always this way. But as you look to the whole New Testament, you see kind of a broader teaching. And, and what you see in the New Testament is that God often does heal people when we pray. He, he, we off, and you often see the important uh, role faith plays in that healing process, Right? But you also, interestingly, see times when God does not heal people, and even when they're prayed for by apostles. Uh, it's interesting. Like, I, I want to run you through some passages of Scripture, and they're all in your note sheet so you don't have to remember them. But, for example, we know that the apostle Paul had uh, gifts of healing. For example, in Ephesians chapter 19, when he's planting the church there, that he had so much power flowing out of him, they would actually take handkerchiefs and touch his body and put it on sick people and they'd get well. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty impressive. Uh, we know in Acts 28, when he was on the island of Malta, a snake, of, a venomous snake, a deadly venomous snake, came out of the, the, the bundle of sticks he was making a fire and bit him. He should have died. He just shakes it off. He's fine. And so he's a man who's got tremendous spiritual power in the area of healing. But, but what's interesting to me is that there's times in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is praying for key ministry partners on his team and, and he, or for himself, and he's not able to, there's no healing. And I want to give you three examples. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, uh, Paul's writing to the church of Galatia that he had started, and he says, you remember that when I came to you and preached the gospel, the whole reason I even came to you is because it was sick. Like, I wasn't even planning on coming to your area, but I was just passing through, but I got so sick that I wasn't able to continue, and from the sound of it, it sounds like he was there at least for months, like recovering. And so here's a time where the apostle Paul is extremely sick in his own life, and I'm sure he's praying for healing and get on with his agenda, but, but, uh, it's, but God says, no, I've got something else planned. Specifically, I want you to share the gospel while you're sick with these people. And we're going to write the book of Galatians on that later on, which is one of the most important books in the New Testament. Okay? Uh, a second example, 2 Thessal- Timothy chapter 4. Paul's on a, a church planting tour. He's in the island of Miletus. He's got a, one of his coworkers there named Trophimus. And when it comes time to move on, Trophimus gets sick, and he's so sick that, that he can't even travel. And Paul, I'm sure, kind of waited for a while, uh, make sure he's ready to go, uh, but he's just not getting better. And so he says, I had to leave him there sick. And this is the apostle Paul. You know, I'm sure that, like, he's praying for him. God, we need him to go. I need him on my team. And yet, God doesn't heal him. That's something else planned. A third example would be in Philippians chapter 2. Paul talks about another key co-worker, a man named Epaphrodites. And he says, he got so sick that I thought I was going to lose him. I thought he was a goner. And, and so I uh, said, but then, at the, you know, God had mercy on him and then healed him at the end. I was kind of surprised. And so you get this picture of, you know, again, Paul, I'm sure, praying for this buddy, this, this kind of powerful leader in the, in the movement of Jesus, and yet not healing. And so what you have in the New Testament is you have kind of a both and. And so I think the lesson for us as believers is as James says, that when we are sick and we have something gone, we should pray boldly. We should ask for healing. Uh, there are many times you call the elders of the church. We do that here. We will anoint you with oil and pray for you for a serious thing. And, and so, and we need to trust God that if he wants to do that, he will do that. And we've seen healings, right? But there's other times when he's going to say, no, I've got something else planned. And so he's kind of see a balanced teaching in the New Testament on that. Now, he goes on and he says something intriguing. He says, uh, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And he says, if he sinned, uh, he will be forgiven. Now, this is interesting because in the New Testament, there doesn't seem to be a connection between our sin and sickness kind of as the normal way things happen. Like, in other words, if you email me this week and says, Mike, I just came back to the doctor. I've got leukemia. Uh, my first thought is not going to be, oh, what did you do wrong? Right? That's not my thought at all, because we live in a fallen world. There's sickness or disease. It's part of the, the whole thing. And so, uh, uh, and so there's no connection in the New Testament. And normally, between we sin, therefore we get sick. But the New Testament does teach that there are times, kind of exceptions. We have several examples where sickness does come as a result of our sin. And so James says, if that's the case in this situation, you need to confess your sin and then pray for them to be 
healed. And so he seems to be describing a situation where someone's sick, calls the elders, and you kind of probe into this spiritually. Is there anything you're aware of in your life that may have led to this spiritually? That could, could be, this could be a discipline from God to bring you back. And if so, then you want to confess that so that you can be healed not only physically but, but uh, spiritually. Then in the next verse, he seems to take this principle of confession and kind of broaden it out to the church of Christ in general. And he says, uh, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. And so he seems to take this, this principle of, of like praying for the sick person confessing. He says, hey, in your church in general, that seems to be the idea that this should be something that, that when you're in sin in your life, Uh, you need to confess that sin to one another and pray for healing, and we'll talk about that more later. So up to this point now, he's talked to us a lot about prayer, hasn't he? He said, uh, are you in trouble? Then you need to pray. He said, if you're sick, call the elders, they'll pray. If you fall into sin, confess your sins and pray. And so he's talked a lot about prayer, and he says, the reason I'm challenging you so much in prayer, I want you to catch this, is the, the community of Jesus is a supernatural community, Right? And it's a community that runs on prayer. It's a community that runs on conversation with God as we discuss with God what we're doing together. That's my favorite definition of prayer. Prayer is about talking with God about what we're doing together. And so so the, the community of Jesus is a community of prayer. And he says, the reason I'm talking so much is because prayer works. And so he says next in verse um, the end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous man, and he just means a, a Christ follower who's following Jesus, is powerful and effective. So that's why I'm talking about prayer so much. This stuff really works. Now, next he's going to give us an example, kind of a case study to, to underscore how powerful prayer could be. And this is a story we started the day with. Some of you probably recognized it. It was a story of the Old Testament, a very famous story in, Jewish, in the Jewish world, which remember all these people he's writing to are, are Jewish Christ followers. It's the story of a man named Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in the time of a, a wicked king and queen named uh, Ahab and Jezebel that had led the nation away from God into idolatry and all kinds of evil things. And, and so God sends uh, Elijah to them to rebuke him. And what Elijah says is, listen, uh, God's going to bring a judgment on you. And, and from now on, it's not going to rain anymore until I say so. Right? And so then he walks out and he says, God, uh, you need to back me up on this, right? And so he begins to pray that, that God would not sin. And sure enough, for the next three and a half years, it doesn't rain. This is a big deal. Like I said, it's like Southern California, kind of semi-arid land. And so, so now crops are dying. People are starting to die. Animals are dying. And so now God finally has the attention of the nation. You know how crises have bring your attention back. So he's got the attention. And so after three and a half years, Elijah, who's been now hiding out from the king for three and a half years because there's a price on his head, he goes to the king and he throws down this spiritual challenge. Let's have a showdown. Your God's my God. Uh, place Mount Carmel. Let's, let's, let's duke it out. And so they go to Mount Carmel. They get 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah there against the one prophet of the true God, Yahweh. And, and they have this kind of a spiritual duel of uh, who, which God will send fire from heaven to light the altar. And if you've read that story, you know, of course, the true God does. And it leads to at least a short-term revival in the nation. They, they slaughter the, the priests uh, of Baal and Asherah. And so then, and so, uh, then after that, uh, Elijah says to the king, okay, rain is on its way. You better get back to your palace because if you don't, your chariot's gonna get stuck in the mud. Now, I haven't seen the rain in three and a half years. And so now Elijah says, uh, after everyone leaves, he goes, okay, I guess it's time to pray. And he goes out and he begins praying and he prays seven times and on the seventh time, the rain begins to come. Okay, and so this is a very famous story that if you're a Jewish child, you've been raised on. Elijah's one of the most famous heroes in Jewish history. And so uh, what James is saying is, look, that's a case study of like how prayer can work. And so he says in verse 17, Elijah was a man uh, just like us. And of course, you might be saying, no, he wasn't. He's a prophet. I'm just me. But, but the point is, is that prayer is not about us. Prayer works because of God, right? Prayer doesn't work because of us. Prayer works because of God. And the fact was, Elijah was like us. 
You know, we often put prophets and leaders up on a pedestal, but we're all made from the same stuff, right? All the human race. And, and Elijah, the very next day after that huge victory that he had on Mount Carmel, the next day, the, you know, the queen wasn't there, and she finds out that what he's done killed her prophets, I mean, yeah, and, and, and all their priests. Uh, she puts a price on his head. He has to start running for his life again after three and a half years of hiding. He is so depressed, he just he gets exhausted. He falls down and says, God, I just want to die. I'm out of here. So you've all had days like this, right? It's like, God was amazing yesterday, not so much today. I'm ready to go. Just take me, right? <laughs> and so, so, uh, so he is made of stuff like us. And so he was a man like us, but he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and then it didn't rain again on the land for three and a half years, and then he prayed, and the, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. So he's referring to that event. And then he ends up with a call to accountability. He says, my brothers, if any one of you should wander from the truth. Now, have you ever seen this happen? Right? Maybe your life, someone else's life. We wander sometimes, don't we? That whatever the dark side pulls or some false teaching comes into our life, and we find ourselves suddenly, we're away from God. We we're walking away from, from Jesus. And he says, if that happens, if one of you in your community of Christ followers should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, someone kind of goes after them and brings them back, says, hey, dude, what are you doing? You know, like, come on, let's, hey, let's get back on track. You know, this person's off having an affair or they're getting distracted with their, their business and kind of falling away from the Lord or there's kind of a drug involved. Whatever the thing is, you go, after him, you bring them back. He says uh, that remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death, probably spiritual death, and then cover over a multitude of sins, which means either that as you, as you help this person come back to Jesus, there's, their sins are covered by Jesus, right? Or it could mean, you know, you know uh, we understand that as Christ followers, we're, we're forgiven by what Christ did on the cross. So he's not saying that, hey, you did this, so therefore God will forgive you. But, but I think we've all done dumb things in our life that we regret. And sometimes you just kind of say, I mean, I wish I could just make up for that. I you know, can't really go up, but I wish I could make up for that dumb thing. And, and I think what James is saying is that, is that when we bring someone back to Christ who's on the way out or someone, and we, we, you lead someone to Christ, I mean, that's just a tremendous thing. That just makes up for a lot of bad stuff in our life because you've helped someone find their way back, okay? And so, so that's the passage. It's really a passage about what does it look like to be the community of Jesus, this new movement, uh, and do life together through good times, through bad times. We're walking well with the Lord. When we're not walking well, how, what does it look like to grow together in this movement of Jesus? And so, what we're going to do today is we want to stand back and ask some questions as we wrap up this series. We want to say for us as a church, I mean the whole message of James has been uh, it's not enough to listen to the word and to love the word. You have to do the word. And so what does it look like us as the community of Jesus here at Rocky Peak to live out, to be this new movement, to be this new community? And to get at this, uh, there are your note sheet. There's a section and uh, it's called uh, The Movement, Doing Life Together. And I want to give you three words. And they're actually all going to rhyme just to prove that I am a real pastor and that I, I did go to seminary. I don't do this very often, but every once in a while, I'll both wear shoes and rhyme on the same day. So uh, here we go. Number one, uh, first word is the word prayer. Uh, the first thing that that James says is that part of being the movement of Jesus, it truly is a supernatural movement, and the way we take care of each other is through prayer. That that uh, th this is the way we partner with God to expand His movement and to take care of one another. And so you see this, for example, in five thirteen. It's the very first thing he says. He says, uh, uh, "If any one of you is in trouble, he should what pray." So the very first thing he says. In the community of Jesus, when you're going through hard times, you should pray. And then he goes on to talk. He says, so, so pray uh, when you're sick, go to the elders and pray. And when you fail and you get off track spiritually, confess your sins and pray. And by the way, prayer accomplishes a lot of stuff. It's the way God does his work. It's very effective. And for example, here's an example of Elijah. So the whole first movement, the emphasis is the community of Jesus is a supernatural community and is fueled by prayer. And remember what prayer is. Prayer is just conversation conversation with God about what we're doing together, right? And so we're not talking some ritual thing. We're just saying that, that as when we become a Christ follower, we move into this realm where God is our father, Christ is our brother, and so we together partner with him in ministry. And the way we do that is by conversation, by saying, God, this is what we need in this situation. Now, 
this is something that Jesus taught. In fact, one of the best passages on this was the very last night that he was with his men before he was arrested. And what he said that very last night is that I am leaving, I'm turning over my movement to you. I'm going to be with my father. All authority on heaven and earth will be given to me. I will be the new king of the cosmos. He says, and so in my absence, I will be with you through the Holy Spirit. And together, we're going to work out this movement in a way that brings honor and glory to my Father. And so here's the way it's going to work. I'm in heaven. I've got the power. You're on earth in the war zone. And when you see something that needs to be done for my kingdom, I want you to go and ask in my name. I want you to come and ask ask for what I would ask for. Ask with my authority. Show my badge. You're one of my people. And I want you to ask, and then we will partner together to establish this movement. Are you with me? That's kind of the main thing. Now, the passage is in John 14. And I want you to turn there. And this last night that Jesus was with his men, In chapters 14, 15, and 16, he's having this long, we're getting excerpts of this long teaching that night. And what's amazing to me is that four times in these three chapters, Jesus talks about the power of asking, that this is how we are going together accomplish his movement. And what I want to do is walk you through those four passages very quickly. We won't spend a lot of time, but I just want you to see this for yourself, the power of asking how Jesus says this is how the movement goes forward. So the first passage is chapter 14 and verse 12. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me, no trust in me, he will do what I've been doing. So he will expand this movement. And in fact, he will do even greater things. And of course, this was true. The early church began to expand the movement of Jesus much further than when he was there. He'll do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to be crowned as king of the cosmos. And so I will have the power. You'll be on earth. And the question is, well, how as his movement, how are we to do greater things? And this is what he says in verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Son may bring glory to the Father and you, so you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So Jesus says, I'm leaving, you're staying, you're going to accomplish greater things. How is that going to happen? It's going to happen by conversation. It's going to happen by asking. Okay? That's the first time he says it. Now, what's interesting to me is three times in this last conversation, this last night of teaching, he is going to come back and talk about the power of asking as the fuel that fuels his movement. And I want to just quickly show you. The next passage is 15.7. Let's turn over to page 15.7. This is the famous passage where he talks about uh, the, the vine and branch. I'm the vine, you're the branch. And he says, if you abide in me, if you remain in me, you stick with me, you follow me, that you will bear much fruit. You're going to have an impact in this world. And so he says in 15.7, you know, but how is that impact going to happen? In 15.7, he says, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, and as you follow my teaching, then ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. You see that? So it's the second time he said this. Uh, uh, first he says, you're going to do greater things. How is it going to happen? By asking. Next he says, you're going to bear fruit. How does that happen? By asking. Now, if there's any question about that, go to the third passage, 1516, and he spells it out even more cl- clearly. You did not choose me. But I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit. So as his followers, this is our job, this is our calling, this is what he's prepared us to do. He says, fruit that will last, in other words, for eternity. So then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. You see, that's so it's the third time he said, you're going to bear fruit and, and how you're going you're to ask for it. This is how it's going to work. And then the last time he talks about it is chapter 16 and verse 24. Same night, same conversation, 16, 24. He says, until now, 1624, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name, so ask and you will receive and your joy will be full. You'll be complete. And so so four times in this last night, he basically says, I'm leaving, turning the movement over. You're going to do greater things. I've called you to bear fruit. Here's how it's going to work. As you see something needs to be done, you ask, I'll answer. Now, here's what we see. So that's his teaching the last night he's with him. Let's fast forward. We go forward the next day, crucified, 
On Sunday, it rises from the dead. He spends the next month and a half coming and going, visiting them, 40 days. Ten days uh, after 40 days, he leaves for good into heaven. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, Luke gives us uh, kind of a snapshot of what life was like in the early church. And he says, in this early movement of Jesus, there were four top priorities for the early church. He says, number one was the apostles' teaching. And number one, he said, was the teaching of Jesus, learning how to follow Jesus in our life. He said, number two was the fellowship, this new community of believers. Number three was the breaking of bread, which takes in both uh, uh, sharing meals together, but also celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper, as we're going to be doing later. And then number four, he says, is prayer. It was one of the top prayers. It was, the movement of Jesus was a supernatural movement. He had just taught them about the priority of prayer a month and a half before, and they were a community very committed then to, to praying and partnering with Jesus to bring his kingdom to earth. Remember as he taught us to pray, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is. And so that's what we're doing in prayer. We're partnering with his kingdom will come. And so there on your note sheet, You've got the Acts 2 verse, the snapshot. They devoted themselves, and you want to underline that word. They devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Okay, so top priority. Now, this is what you see then as you move out in the New Testament. For example, in Colossians chapter 4, there in your note sheet, uh, Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. He's talking to the whole church here. He says, devote yourselves as a church to prayer. Make it a top priority. Same word in English, devote. Same work in Greek. Uh, and, And he says, be watchful and be thankful. So be on the lookout. So when, he says when you go to pray, two things. You need to be watchful for what needs to happen. We're going to ask God for that. And we're going to be thankful for what God is doing. Two, two things that need to happen. And then in chapter 6 of Ephesians, the apostle Paul talks about spiritual warfare. And you may remember this. This was a passage that Pastor Peter Kassiraview talked about in Mother's Day this year. And so Paul says when it comes to spiritual warfare, one of our greatest weapons is prayer. And so he says in Ephesians 6.18, pray in the spirit. Now catch that. So, so prayer in the body of Jesus is a supernatural experience. We're to pray in the spirit. In other words, when we go to prayer, it's not just our agenda. When we go to prayer, we're not just bringing our concerns. We're really asking God for what are your concerns. Like, like what do you want me to be focused on? So like yesterday, I'm at Corner Bakery for a while in the morning out in Simi. I often hang out there Saturday mornings, get a table away from everyone outside. Just a time to spend with the Lord. I got my journal out, and, and it's just very typical. I just kind of, God, what do you want to say to me? What do you want me to be praying for? What's on your heart today? And so I'm going to bring my own concerns to him, but I'm also going to be saying, God, what is your spirit putting on my heart? What are you bringing to mind? What are the concerns you're raising to consciousness for me? Because I, I want to be praying in the Holy Spirit. I don't want to just be praying for my agenda. What is your agenda for my, my kids, my, my daughters, my son-in-laws, my, my grandchildren, for this church, for different friends, for my family, what this, for this nation? Like what? What are the things that are on your heart that you want me to bring to you? See, the best prayer always starts with God. The best prayer always starts with what is on his heart that he brings to our heart that that we offer it back up. It is a partnership. And so Paul says, pray in the spirit, pray on all occasions so it's to be a lifestyle for us, all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And so we we watch each other's backs in the the movement of Jesus. I've got your back, you've got mine. And we'll, we'll, we'll look out. So Paul says when it comes to spiritual warfare, one of the most top priorities is prayer. It's how we get things done. And so, so this helps us understand. So James, as he comes to this final teaching for us, he says, hey, this movement of Jesus is supernatural movement. And so when you're in trouble, pray. When you're sick, call the elders, pray. When you fall into sin, uh, share your stories with one another and pray. Prayer works. It's effective. Elijah's the example. Okay, and so, so as a church, as we wrap up this series, talk about what does it mean to follow Jesus, there is a call to us to continually grow in prayer. Now, three areas for us here at Rocky Peak we want to focus on. Uh, number one, I know our life groups are out for the summer. 
But one of the primary strategies for prayer at Rocky Peak is for our small groups. This is why we've taken a big church and we've broken it down to small. One of the most important things that happens in our small groups is prayer. Because, see, in a big church, it's not possible. Like, for those of you, like, if you're sitting in a certain area, like, if you come to 11 o'clock service normally, you, sit, you probably know a few people around you because everyone sits in the same seats every week. But, but like, beyond your five-foot radius or whatever, you, you're not really going to know those people. And you, often, you don't even know. You can't pray for them in trouble. You don't even know they're in trouble. I, I talked to a man today. He was writing his Harley Ed, and so I went over to admire it. And, and we were talking about it. And Jesus, and, and uh, so we were talking about his, his Harley, and it was a 1999 Road King, it was green, it was beautiful, and I was just loving it, and so we're talking about that, and he shares with me that his wife took a fall about five weeks from that, uh, five weeks ago, and, and that uh, she broke her neck, and so she's recovering from that. Now, I know this guy, I know his name, but I don't know, I don't, I didn't know that story, right? I'm not, because it's a big church, right? And we don't know each other's stories. And so that's why you take a big church, you break it down into small churches, which is what our small groups are about. And so they're in a small church. Now I know when you're in trouble. I know when you're sick. I know when you're struggling with sin. And we can pray for one another. And this is our primary strategy. And this is one of the reasons for those of you who are not in a group, I just really encourage you to pray about being in a group because being in a group is about being in a place where we can be who Jesus said to be. We're to pray for each other. We can't really do that if we're not in a place where we know what's going on. So small groups, right? That's a big that's a strategy here. We need to continue to grow in our small groups. Is your small group really focused on prayer? Is that an important part? Uh, second area is in large group prayer. And you know that, that that's why here at Rocky Peak, from time to time, we will have a special convocation. We call them 24 hours of prayer or something. Or we'll have special encounter nights where we're getting together to focus on a particular need that God's laying on our heart. Like back, uh, back at Good Friday, you remember we announced we were having a special 24 hours of prayer. Come here to the campus, pray. Because as leaders, we sensed in the Holy Spirit, we sensed that we were, we were going through a time of spiritual attack. That God was doing some major good things in our church. The enemy was trying to stop that. And we needed to rise up and go to war. And so we, we did that. And so there will be times in the history of this church we gather together for large corporate prayer or for more intentional large group things like that. But then also, I want to constantly call you as your pastor to remind you how important as a Christ follower it is that you are spending time alone with God in prayer. That's just so important. And it's so easy to get distracted, and I know it's sometimes even hard to know how to do that. And that's why we've created this, this course, this very first essential we ever created that's part of our, the essentials in our growth path called Pursuing God One-on-One. Because I know as a pastor that I've met with so many people, I want to learn how to spend time with God and pray. I just don't know how. My mind wanders, blah, blah, blah. I get that. And so I create a whole course on like how do you spend time with God? And how do you read his word? And how do you do that? And so uh, we're not offering that like tomorrow, but we will, we will be getting that. We're trying to get those online so that they're just available at all times. So we're working in that direction. But, but the point is, uh, it's small group, it's large group, it's one-on-one. The movement of Jesus is supernatural. And if we want to experience the movement of God, we need to be talking with God about what we're doing together. That's how things get done. Okay, so that's the first thing he says. So the first word is care. The second word is the word share. And I'm talking about a particular kind of sharing here. I'm talking about sharing our spiritual journey Uh, especially in times of weakness or failure or struggle. Though what James says, if we're going to grow in Jesus, that we need to have a community that has some real vulnerability, where we're sharing not just the good times, we're sharing the hard times, we're sharing when we fail. The way he puts it is in 5.16, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be what? Okay, good, three of you. I'll see you then. Uh, pray, confess your sins to one another. This is verse 16. Get oriented. All right. uh, pray for each other. You may be healed. Okay, there we go. So uh, James says there's something powerful that happens when we confess our sins, weakness, struggles, failures together and pray for each other that there's a healing that takes place. Now, I think this is kind of hard for us often to get our hands around. 
Like as Christ followers, we understand, most of us understand that if we're going to grow in our relationship with God, that it's important that when we get off track spiritually, when we fail, that we have an honest conversation with God about that failure, right? We call that confession, honest conversation about failure. That's what confession is, okay? Uh, And we understand that because as we talk about here many times at Rocky Peak, that if we're not honest about our failure or our need to grow, that even God can't help us. Like, like we, we have to be honest. If you go to the doctor, you gotta tell him your symptoms for him to give you the right diagnosis, right? So, so if, if we, and so we often encourage you here to be radically honest in your relationship with God because it's there that God can heal and restore and teach and, and, and encourage and empower you, right? So we get that. And so, for example, 1 John 1, 9, one of the first verses we often teach to new believers, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins, and he'll purify us from all right. So we, we get that, right? We're comfortable with that. But when it comes to James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray that you'll be healed, we often skip that verse, right? We're good with the uh, vertical confession. We're not so good with this horizontal confession, right? Why can't I just keep this between me and God, right? And so sometimes we resist this for theological reasons. Like some of us were raised in a tradition where we were taught in order to be forgiven, we had to confess our sins to like a priest and then receive absolution for that. And so we've come to Jesus now. We know that's not true. We know the Bible doesn't teach that. And so as a result, kind of a reaction, like we're not going to confess our sins to anyone. Right, because we just need Jesus, and we just need the cross, and that's all we need. And so, of course, we know that's true, that, that, that it's through Christ, and His cross we're forgiven, and so we resist it for that reason. Others of us will resist it for more practical reasons, that we're just embarrassed, right? Or, or we're, uh, uh, we're, it's our, it hurts our pride, or we're afraid, this is a very real fear, that if I share it with the wrong person, they may use it against me, or they may not keep the confidence, right? And that's a very legitimate fear. And so for whatever reason, we pull back, and yet James says that if you confess your sins, there's a power that's released. And what, what this is really true, if you've ever tried this, you know this is true. Because there's, there's something that happens, uh, let me run this by you, see if this rings true. When we have secret sin in our life, we have secret sin in our life, and we don't share it with anyone, it tends to build walls around us and isolate us, doesn't it? Because, because even if we have a friendship and, and, uh, uh, and you act like you like me, that what I really believe in my heart is, yeah, but you don't know me. If you knew about this secret sin, you wouldn't like me. And so what happens is when we have secrets in the body of Christ, it just isolates us from one another. And once we're isolated, we become vulnerable to Satan himself. Because now Satan comes and says, you call yourself a Christian? And look what you're doing. How could you be a Christian? Satan comes and says, hey, you're asking for forgiveness again for that? God's not going to forgive you. You've kind of worn that out. Like you've asked too many times. There's a limitation here. Right? Uh, Satan's going to come and say, hey, yeah, okay, maybe God will forgive you, maybe, but, but if you come back uh, to Christ, you're going to have to sit in the back row. Right? No, no offense to you back there, but, uh, <laughs> you know, or he'll come and Satan will come and say, why don't you just give up and give in to this sin because you're never going to be strong enough to, to, be, to, to overcome it, right? So when we're isolated, we are very vulnerable. And if you've ever experienced this, you know it's true that when you bring the right person, someone you can trust, when you bring them in and say, man, I'm struggling or I've failed, there is freedom there, isn't there? And there is power there because what happens is they come in, they put their arm around you, they love on you, they encourage you, they they strengthen you, and there is now freedom. And all of a sudden we realize if this person will love me like that, how much more would Jesus love me? And they become really kind of like the hands and feet of Jesus, and I experience God's love through their love, and now that I've received their love, it's easier for me to receive God's love. Does that make sense? And so, so now there's power, and now there's freedom, and there's encouragement, and so Satan would love nothing more in your life than to keep you isolated. You know, some of you are struggling with different things. It might be uh, pornography. It might be uh, uh, some kind of financial issue. It might be homosexuality that you're struggling. You've never let anyone in. You've never let anyone know that you have same-sex attraction and you're not sure what to do with that. And you're out there on your own. 
and Satan is attacking you, and you're never going to win, and you're never going to give up, and God doesn't love you, and none of it's true, and you need a brother or a sister in your life to come in and speak the truth of God that he loves you radically. He died for you, and he is with you no matter what you're facing, but you're not going to hear that when you're by yourself. You see? see so, so here he is. We want to create a body here at Rocky Peak that's incredibly vulnerable, right? That's incredibly a safe place where we love one another and we take this journey together. And when we fail, we're there for one another. Amen? Amen. All right. Now let me tell you something else. Here's another reason. Here's another reason why it's so important to share our journey is for accountability. Because here's the thing. Often we can fool ourselves. We, We think we're sorry for our sin. We think we're ready to leave it because we keep going to God and telling him how sorry. But the reality is we're not ready to leave it. And we learned this back in James chapter four that true repentance is not just saying I'm sorry or feeling sorry. True repentance is surrendering to the lordship of Jesus in that area of our life. And it's often easy to fool ourselves and not realizing that we're not ready to surrender when it's just between us and God. But there's something that happens when we share with a brother or sister this struggle. There's a new level of accountability. And because of that, there's a new level of motivation to leave that sin behind. Because I don't want to have to come to you and keep telling you I'm failing. Right? And and so we should have that motivation with God. But we don't. Somehow it becomes more real, real when I see God in you. When I see Christ in you as my brother or sister. And so when I come before you and I, I say, here's my thing and here's my issue, it raises the level of accountability and the motivation to truly leave that sin behind. And then I get the encouragement from you and the prayer from you. And you see how this works together now that we, we now are empowered to move on. Powerful. You know, about uh, a couple months ago, I was, fr- I was first starting to work on this particular message and it's funny how God brings illustrations into my life, you know, at the right time. And, and, and so I was, um, during this time, there was a, a, a young man in our body here that's a fairly new believer. I'd gotten to know him a little bit. And there was some kind of some teaching that was coming into his life I was really concerned with. And he was getting more and more concerned that, that, that kind of we weren't really as a church where we need to be. We need to be somewhere else. And I wasn't really teaching the right stuff. And this other thing he was being drawn towards was being, and, and I just saw danger all over this thing. And so uh, because of, they had a little bit of a relationship, I actually reached out and I kind of wanted to meet with him. It was a Saturday night, late at night. But, but it was the only time we could meet. And so we go. And so we, we begin launching into this discussion. And because I did, had limited criminal credibility at this point, you know, because he's thinking, I, was, I, you know, I just did a lot of listening, a lot of affirming, but just trying to kind of reach in, because I'm really concerned for his spiritual future. I mean, I'm just really concerned about this. And so, but at one point, uh, it's a long conversation, he, he begins to uh, uh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of lay out certain things that just push my buttons, right? Now, they were my buttons, I'm taking full responsibility, right? I'm not, no excuse here. But, but they pushed my buttons, and I reacted harshly. Like, I, I, I came on really strong, just said one thing, just said one thing, boom, came out of my mouth. You know that sermon I did about the power of words? <laughs> you know, and how, how reckless words pierce like a knife? Man, I, I, I let an arrow fly. And I'll tell you, it's like a bullseye into his heart. And the moment I, I sent it, I, I could see it pierce him. And I just felt awful because here I am late at night trying to go after a younger brother to protect him from being taken away. And I've just driven him away. Right, just by driving them away by saying something really painful. And the moment I let that arrow fly, I knew I was out of line, and I quickly apologized. I asked him to forgive me. I said, that's not what I meant to say. Here's what I should have said. Let me give a more accurate statement of what I meant. Then he said he forgot and forgave me, but I could tell I had wounded it. Right? So the next morning, I, I, go to, I go home. I feel awful about this. I wake up the next morning. I'm in the shower. Jesus, I've talked to you about this. I, I forget, but I just still over me. Like, what needs to happen here? What, what, what do you want to say to me? And right there sitting in the shower, two things came, like boom, boom, like one-two punch. Here's what you need to do. And, here's, and, and what the God was teaching me was, Mike, you don't understand the power of your words. I mean, you're like the lead pastor of this church. You have to be careful with your words. Your words carry power. They, they, they carry power in people's life. And you have to be careful with that. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He has to be gentle. You know? And God just, and man, he was hitting me hard. And the second word was from Proverbs 6 about when you've, when you've done something wrong, go quickly. Don't leave any time. And it was like, 
I'm texting at six o'clock in the morning. Can we get together? I need, so I need to share something with you. You're like, I just needed to go and humble myself before this young kid. And so anyway, uh, so, so that he didn't want to meet right away because he was too hurt or whatever. And so uh, all week long, I'm after him, you know, and finally we got together and we got it worked out or whatever. But can I tell you, for two days, for two days, the discipline of God was on my life. And, and it wasn't a lack of forgiveness. We were fine. He was saying, we were fine. But there was a pressure on my life. It was like I was being taken to the spiritual woodshed for two days. And then two days later, I'm working out and it lifted and it was gone. And it was like, okay. I think you've learned what you need to learn from this, for this stage of your life, right? To so do the next stupid thing, right? So, and so two days later, I'm meeting with the elders, right? And, and we're just having one of our monthly meetings, and I just feel like God's put it in my heart. I just need to share this story. I just need to humble myself. I just got here's what happened. Here's what I did. Here's what, and we just kind of shared that. Why? Why? Because this is the kind of church we want to be. Right? We want to be a church where we are honest and real and authentic. And when we win, we win. And when we lose, we lose. And we can come together and say, would you pray for me? Because I'm losing in this area. I failed in this area. And I need you to pray for me. Right? And so as we pray, we get healed. You see? And so, so this movement of Jesus, uh, it's a supernatural movement of prayer. It's an honest movement of sharing. Now there's one more word. And the, the third word is the word care. And, and this flows out of the last verse, 5, 19, and 20. I'm talking about a particular kind of care. And it's the care where we go after someone. We care so much that when we see someone heading towards spiritual danger, that we don't just pray for them, we go after them. And so, my brothers, if any of you uh, wanders from the truth, verse 19, uh, someone brings him back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way saves him from death and covers a multitude of sins. Something very similar to what the Apostle Paul said at the end of our last series in Galatians on freedom. And there in your note sheet, brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual and are led by the Spirit, you should restore him gently. Right? So he says that when someone is off track, we're not talking about some small thing, but you see them headed towards danger, you see them uh, uh, straying away from Jesus, straying away from his people, uh, there's something going wrong in their life. He says that, that when that happens, you don't just pray, and you don't just talk to other people, pray for John, I think he said, that you go. That we go after, that if we truly love one another, if we see each other heading in a wrong direction, we don't just let it go and hope they come back. We go and we try to bring them back. Okay, so what does this mean for us? It means here as a church, we take responsibility for one another. We're in this thing together. And so, so maybe you have a friend, and, and that friend is single, and, and they're starting to date someone who is a non-believer, and you can, see, you can see where this is going. We don't just wait to see how that works out, right? We don't wait till they fall in love, and they get engaged, and they're married, and they have kids, and now the spouse doesn't want to bring their kids to church. He wants to raise them in a different thing. We don't wait, like we go now, right? You, you see uh, a brother who's got a business, <coughs> the business got his blessing, but it's taking more and more time and energy. It's pulling away from church. It's pulling away from his life group. It's pulling away from his family. You can see it doing damage. You don't wait until the divorce papers are filed. You go. You say, hey, can we just talk about this? And catch this, we never go to condemn. We never go to shame. We go gently to restore, right? You see a brother and sister, they're going back to their partying lifestyle that they came out of. You can see them getting sucked back in. You see, you have a friend, and you can tell they're getting too close to someone. They're a married person, but they're the, you see them, they're getting too close to someone at work of the opposite sex. You can see this chemistry. You can sense it happening. We don't wait until there's an affair. We step in. Right, that, that as the body of Jesus, we love one another, and when you see someone on the, on, the, on the wrong path to death, we step in, we go after, 
Because he says their spiritual life is at stake, okay? So he says, this is the movement of Jesus. We come to Christ, new vertical relationship to God through faith in Christ, but it's a new horizontal relationship with one another. And so we're, we're a community, we pray. We're a community where we share our struggles. It's a community where we go after each other. And so as we bring this series to an end, what have we learned? We've learned that the mark of a true believer is we act. If you if you believe something, then you're gonna act as if it's true. That's what we've learned. That, that, it, that it's not enough to hear the word, listen to the word, love the word, we have to act on it. And today, he says, okay, one final lesson. We've had lesson after lesson. What does it look like to follow Jesus in practical ways? Today, the lesson is, what does it look like to be the movement of Jesus? And as we bring this service into a close, we wanna have a time of reflection on what we've learned. We want to have a time of communion where we share in the oneness we have in Christ. You know, communion always speaks of the vertical relationship, our forgiveness through Christ on the cross, but it also speaks of the horizontal, that though we are many, as Paul says, that we all partake of one loaf. There's the oneness, and we want to celebrate both. And so as the band comes out, we're going to go into a time of reflection right now. Uh, they're going to lead us, uh, they're going to actually sing a song over us. There's going to be some James passages that come on. I just want you to reflect on, on what we've learned. And in the middle of that time, Lorna dismisses us to the tables to go take communion together. We'll come back to some worship and offering as we just have a time of worship and prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come. We thank you for what we've learned in this series. That the only way we know what we believe is by what we do. And so we pray, God, that we would be a church that acts on what we believe and shows that we are true believers. And we come now to your table. We thank you for the death and resurrection of Christ, that through that we have have been made new and forgiven and whole. We thank you for the new relationship we have with your children when we come to you, and we celebrate that in this communion. We come now, God, and we seek your face. As we come to the end of this series, we seek your face right here and right now. We ask you to speak in these coming minutes. You'd speak through the power of your spirit to us. Now, what you'd have us to hear as we wrap this up. Amen. God, your word says that no eye has seen, no ears heard what you have in store for those who love you. And God, we celebrate that today. We celebrate not only what you've taught us in this series, we celebrate the future, the hope we have. We study next week. This life is all about that life. And so, God, we wait patiently. We wait patiently for your return. We wait patiently for the next life. But in this life, God, we want to live out our faith out loud. God, we want to not only say that we are believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we want to live that out in lives that, demonstrate that, God, by words that build up and don't tear down, by loving the poor, by not showing favoritism in the body, by guarding our tongue, by being men and women of true wisdom that value relationship and love above being right in every little detail. God, we want to be a people that truly repents and doesn't love this world, but but loves you and seeks you with a full heart. God, we want to live for the next life. We want to live out this community. All these things we've learned, God, we want to live it out with this one lesson that we know what we truly believe when we act on it. What we truly believe is only the things we act as if they're true. And so we pray that you take that lesson into our future as we continue this journey with you as church, as fellow Christ followers, that we will be living true lives of faith that shows itself in action. Because as we've learned, that faith without works is dead. It's not the real thing, and it can't save us. We pray that we would live out that life and live our lives out loud. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I am very excited about this next series. You know, it's, uh, the book of James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And so I just love how God weaves our series together. Uh, you go from Galatians on freedom into uh, 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 James, all on living out our life uh, out loud, and then moving back now into Proverbs of the Old Testament. And so it's going to be a great series. This first series in all, uh, first message in all seriousness is very foundational. Uh, we're going to be talking about the fear of the Lord as a first step towards wisdom. And so it's uh, the most 
important lesson of the whole book of Proverbs. That's why we're doing it on a holiday. Uh, you're probably like, what were you thinking? And really, where there is a reason, but it's a very long reason. Uh, and so I'm going to give it to you. But uh, if you're out of town, here's what I'd say. Be sure we've to podcast it. Be sure to podcast it and, and keep up with us, and then we'll be ready for a week. Two, for those of you who, who will be with us next weekend, I look forward to seeing you then. For those of you who will be away, may God bless you as you enjoy uh, the fourth and, and the holiday and being away for a weekend. Until next week, God bless. I love you. See you then. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.